Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather under the means of grace and learn more about your word. And we do pray, Lord, as we look at the doctrines from the, from the scriptures, you'd help us think clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Help me to speak clearly. <laughs> That'd be the greater. That'd be the greater miracle. Yeah. So last week we began talking about the doctrine of total depravity and looking at original sin, how we became sinners through Adam. Today, what I want to do is really hit two things. Number one, I do want to prove that we are spiritually dead. I want to finish that. But number two, we're going to look at what's the effect. How are we spiritually dead? What does the effect of original sin have on us, on our minds, and on our being? And we'll be looking at that as well. But remember, we left off in Romans chapter 5, and I want to just review that. In Romans 5.12, remember, I had a little bit different reading that I think is more compelling. And it says this. Paul said, therefore, just as through one man, that's, of course, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So notice in the traditional rendering, the cause and effect is this, that death came, why? Because we sinned. So death was the cause of sin. But what I had mentioned is the better rendering, I think, is on the basis of which, or literally you could just put upon which, And the idea then is the reason we sinned is because we're spiritually dead in Adam. And I think that's far more compelling in light of the context. Let me ask you this. When you read Romans 5, 12 through 19, I'm sure most of you have read that in here. Is Paul's point that you were born a sinner in Adam or that you worked up to it the moment you sinned? Well, I think it's the former. So let's read the rest of it. I have Brian's going to read. We'll start in verse 13 now, and we'll read all the way through verse 19, and then we'll pause there, and I'll make some comments. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness in the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like his transgression, for it by the transgression of the one, the many died. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the, of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, for on the one hand sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in through the one, Jesus Christ." So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one, through one act of righteousness there resulted, uh, I'm sorry, there resulted uh, justification of life to all men. 
For through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Oh, thank, thank you, Brian. That's wonderful. Yeah. Now, in verse 19, now it's interesting when you read this whole section, Paul builds a crescendo at verse 19. So if you want to understand what the whole passage from verse 12 to 19 is about, verse 19 gives you a very comprehensive yet succinct summary. So I want to focus there. And what I want to look at is the relationship between Adam and Christ. Notice he says, for as through the one man's disobedience. Now stop there. Who's the one man? That's Adam. So through his disobedience, notice it says the many were made sinners. Notice the term made there is the verb kathistimi. Now in Greek, it literally can be rendered appointed or to make something enter into a state of being. So what Paul is very succinctly saying is when Adam sinned, you and I entered into the state of being sinners. How much more clear can the Bible be that God looks at representatives? Our first representative, Adam, fails, he sins, and it results in you and I being considered sinners. Notice the text doesn't say, well, you end up sinning later in your life. It doesn't say that. That's true. You actually do. But Paul's point is kathistimi. When Adam sinned, you and I were appointed. We entered into the state of being a sinner. But notice there's another usage of kathistimi. He says right after that, even so, through the obedience of the one. Now stop there. Whose obedience would that be? Jesus. That's right. Now, some scholars, they'll wrestle with what act of obedience is being referred to there. Well, I think it's not just the cross. It's his whole life. It's his whole life. It's his life and his death, everything that Christ does. So through his obedience, what? The many will be made righteous. So again, notice the term made, kathistimi. So through the sin of Adam, we were kathistimi, we were appointed sinners. But through the righteousness of Christ we can be appointed righteous. The term righteous there, dikaios, meaning that you and I have just and righteous standing before God forevermore. So how much more clear can Paul say you're either in Adam or you're in Christ? You're either, in be, you're either being representative by Adam, which you're going to be a sinner, or your new representative that you get through faith is Jesus Christ, where you get your righteousness it's one or the other, isn't it? It's either or. Now, notice a couple things in this text too. One thing I want to point out is verse 14 and in verse 17. Notice the phrase, death reigned from Adam until Moses. That's verse 14. And then in verse 17, it says, death reigned through the one. So that's what I like to think about this text. I like to think about original death. Not just original sin, but where did death come from? Now, when you and I talk about death, we often think of just physical death. But here, primary is spiritual death. Secondary is physical death. They're always hand, they go hand in hand. Let me give you an illustration. Do you remember God had promised the moment that Adam and Eve sinned? If they would not obey his word, they would die. Now, the moment they sinned in the aid of the fruit, the forbidden fruit, did they physically die? No. But they were separated immediately. Remember, they were cast out of Eden, weren't they? Okay. 
So there it shows that death is primary separation, but yes, physical death comes later. In the same way in Romans 5, 12 through 19, it's the spiritual death being separated from God. That's what's primary. Now, uh, if you don't mind, keep reading verses 20 through 21. Oh, I'm sorry, Bob, did you have something? I, I was going to oh, mention... Um, oh, there's another one over here, too. Oh, yes. I was going to mention I, had, I was following through on my Greek while you're doing that. Mm. So it strikes me how often the word one shows up here. Yes. And so it's kind of a contrived theology that reads all this. It doesn't see anything about one at all. Right. In other words, it's what we do. You know, we do this or we do that and yeah. we create our own destiny. Right where it says through the one, through the one, through the one. And then when you get the flip side of it, the good side, justification, it's through the one, Christ. Right. And so I don't think it's even something that ought to be disputed. Yes. This isn't an unclear passage. It's a clear passage. Amen. The only reason people don't get it is because they don't like it. Yes. Amen. Okay. And Pelagianism keeps rearing its ugly head, or semi-Pelagianism. Yes. And also, if you go to 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two. Yeah, we're going to look at that. Amen. Oh, we're yeah. going to? Yeah, okay. absolutely. I'll, no, I'll let that one go then. No, that's good. So you have the one and the many. Now, the Adam-Christ analogy is very common in the New Testament. Yeah. In Adam and Christ. Yeah, amen. And so a little preview. When I preach this morning, I'm going to deal with the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, because I want to refute this Enneagram about solitude, silence, all that stuff. They try to use that as a proof text. But it talk, in, it, uniquely in Luke, Adam is called the son of God, which is in, in Luke's right. Uh, genealogy. Right. Okay. And Jesus is called the son of God. Yeah. And so Adam as a son of God failed in the temptation. Okay? Even though Eve was the primary actor, Adam's responsible for it. Yes. Okay? And so in Adam, there's failure and sin and death. The one. Amen. The son of God, Adam. And then the son of God, Christ, went in and endured all those same temptations if you look at the, what the temptations were. Yeah. And he succeeded. So through the entire New Testament, it's telling us you're either in Adam by natural generation and you're dead, or you come to Christ and you're in Christ and you are alive because of his one act of righteousness and, his, and the imputed righteousness of Christ. Amen. I don't think it's, there's no reason this is even disputed. Right. Okay, and so when... I was dealing with this in the 80s and 90s, trying to get a whole church to come on board with grace alone. All these disputes and, oh, how can it be? It doesn't seem right. Over and over. And you read the text, it's not even... Hard. It's not even hard. It's not even confusing. It's very, very clear. And so the real only question is, are we going to accept what God told us or are we just going to decide we don't like it? Exactly. And I'll tell you the worst place to ever get your theology yeah. from your feelings. Right. Right. <laughs> That's how Eve got hers. 
Oh, it doesn't feel right. Is it right that God won't let you have this one tree over here? Hey, Bob, let's have him look at the screen once. Just what you said. Look at everybody above the line. Notice the extent of moral corruption. You're alive, weakened or weakened. Is that what the text just said? In other words, what Bob is pointing out is, I think everyone above the line, whether it's the Pelagian, the Armenian, or the semi-Pelagian, they're just simply not taking what Paul says in Romans 5, 12 through 19 seriously. And like Bob is saying, this isn't hard. I remember there was one scholar, he was an Arminian, and commenting on Romans 9, which clearly teaches the doctrine of election, he simply stated in a blog, this is not long ago, in fact, Jesse, your daughter, saw this. He said, whatever that text means, it can't mean that. <laughs> well, what does it mean then? It can't mean what it says. It can't mean what it says. So I really think that everyone below the line takes this passage very seriously. That's the point. Now, one thing I want to point out, I want to keep reading into verse 20 through 21 because I want you to see Paul reaches his conclusion grammatically. He gives you a so that. So he reaches an inference in verse 21. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, Brian, keep reading verse 20 through 21 of Romans 5. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. No, stop there. So now Paul adds in this idea that the law of Moses came in. What was the effect of the law of Moses? That it tampered down our sin nature? No, it inflamed it. It inflamed it. Why? So that the law could shut every mouth, showing us that, no, it's only through Christ that we can have righteousness. Now, notice here in verse 21, there's a so that. Uh, So read verse 21. So that, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice the first portion of that clause in verse 21. Sin reigned in death. And again, that's why I'm convinced that the whole point of Romans 5, 12 through 19 can be best stated original death. Yes, sin is there. That's what brought death. But in verse 12, what Paul's pointing out is that you and I sinned. Why? Because we're spiritually dead in Adam. That's what the point is. The point of the whole text is that death reigned in Adam. If you're born spiritually dead, you can do nothing pleasing to God. That's the whole point. Now, Bob had mentioned a text that says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. Turn your Bibles there, if you will. I just want you to see that this isn't an isolated example here in Romans 5. It's all over the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22. Now, as you turn there, remember here, Paul's talking about the physical resurrection. So think of it this way. In Romans 5, when Paul's talking about death, spiritual death is primary Physical death is subordinate. Now here in 1 Corinthians 15, physical death is primary and spiritual death is subordinate. But they're still both together. You can't take one without the other. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since, now verse 21, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Notice all men are dead, what? In Adam. And again, in 1 Corinthians 15, physical death is primary, but spiritual death is certainly subordinate in there as well. Okay, now let me show you another text where Paul is very clear that you and I are born spiritually dead. 
Uh, Bob taught us this in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 2, not long ago. So let's review this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, I want you to notice that phrase in red, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In the original Greek text, this is a participle, and the participle just leaves you hanging. In fact, it's never resolved until you get to verse 4. Okay, now why does Paul do that? Because it builds tension in the text. If you realize in verse 1, sorry, Bob, I must be doing something with them. Yeah. In verse 1, because you and I are dead, it builds the crescendo saying, well, how is this going to be resolved? Well, in verse 4, he says, he made you alive. Okay? So when it says you were dead in your trespasses, remember Paul is writing this to whom? To believers. So he's saying that you were dead in your trespasses. Well, let's ask ourselves, they certainly couldn't be physically dead, otherwise they can't read and understand the text. So he's not talking about physical death, is he? What kind of death is he referring to? Spiritual death. Being separated from God. All right. Now, what's interesting is notice in verse 2, talking about being spiritually dead, what does it incorporate? Well, he says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Notice in the underline the term walked. The Greek term there, peripateo, is best understood to be lived out. Now, I like the term walked. You and I will talk about that. You'll ask someone about how their Christian walk is doing. Okay, you're not actually asking them how are they physically walking. You're talking about how they're living out their Christian life. So think of this analogy when you think of this term walked. Think of the Israelites. They had an exodus event, didn't they? They were saved, as it were, by what? The Passover lamb. If they weren't given a Passover lamb, they would have perished. They were then baptized through the Red Sea. Then they went into the wilderness where they had to walk out their salvation, as it were. Well, the majority of them disbelieved and they fell. So think of the idea of walking it out. You and I are walking now in the wilderness. And the idea is that formerly, prior to Christ, we were walking out our lives. We were living them according to what? The course of this world. Now, the term world here, Bob has had a... Um, Bob, do you remember what message you talked about? Um, the, oh, yeah. the term cosmos? It has a range of meaning. Yeah. It can mean the created universe. Yep. Yeah, I'm sorry. We'll put you on tape here. Uh-huh. Yeah, the term cosmos has a range of meaning. And one thing, it can mean just the entire created universe. Yeah. Okay? And another meaning can mean the arena of human affairs. And that's not necessarily, you know, talking about the sinfulness. It's right. just, you see, we got that wrong. That's why it was important to me. Yeah. When I was in that group, where everything was Babylon and we had to just sort of be cloistered. Right, right. Well, that's where people get it wrong. The monastics were doing that. They thought they could get out of the world by being cloistered somewhere. 
But the Bible's not telling us that as Christians we leave the arena of human affairs. Exactly. Whether it's educational or economic or social, whatever, we're still in the world but not of it. Yeah. The third meaning of cosmos is the world that is sinful rebellion against God. And that's how it's being used here. Right. So when you see that word cosmos, translated world, you've got to look at the context to see if it's talking about God created the entire universe or, you know, you're in the world but not of it. Well, in it would be arena of human affairs. Exactly. Not of it would be the change to in its sinful rebellion against God. Amen. Thank you so much, Bob. Excellent. So you can see clearly here, Paul, when he's talking about the course of this world, oops, I hit a button there. The world here must mean the third definition, as Bob pointed out. It's humankind in rebellion. Certainly, he's not saying you walked according to the course of the earth, as, as if the earth as a physical structure is somehow deficient, even though, yes, it's marred by sin. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is that you and I walked according to those who are in rebellion against God. Now, you notice he says it's also according. By the way, the preposition here is a preposition of standard. So this was the standard of our life. How did we walk before conversion? Well, it was according to the prince of the power of the air. And this, of course, is a reference to Satan in the demonic realm of the spirit that is now working in what? The sons of disobedience. So the point is you and I lived our lives as if we followed Satan and all those who were in rebellion against God. Why? Because we were dead spiritually. That's the point. Okay, so I don't think Paul can be any clearer. So what was Pelagius smoking or, or sniffing or whatever that he came up with this idea that we weren't born sinners? What's wrong with him? Well, he just doesn't care what the Bible says. And so it is with all those who deny spiritual death. Paul couldn't be any clearer. Remember, the Apostle Paul is a personal spokesman for Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 10, whoever receives you, that is his apostles, receives me. If you reject Jesus Christ, excuse me, if you reject the apostles' words, you're rejecting Jesus Christ's words. The Apostle Paul is telling us the words of Christ, that we are spiritually dead. So, Now what I want to do is start developing in what ways are we spiritually dead? How does it affect us? Obviously, we're physically alive. So in what way are we spiritually dead? And what I'm going to show you is primarily sin affects our minds, not just our intellect, but also our disposition, our emotions, all that we are in the way that we think as individuals. Now, let me start unpacking this a little bit. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans 1. And we're going to read verses 20 through 27. And if we could have someone read just to save the voice a little, um, that'd be wonderful. Would somebody volunteer reading Romans 1, 20 through 27? Nancy, thank you. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Nancy. You know what? I just remembered you had a thought or a comment. Or... Okay, well, um, if you feel like coming back to it, feel free. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. Romans 1. I can hide my own Easter eggs. I'm getting forgetful, I guess. So sorry about that. If it comes up again, I'll. Okay. Uh, Romans 1 20 through 27. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll read verse 20 and we'll pause there. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, 
his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Okay, so let's stop there for just a moment. This is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible teaching us about what's called natural revelation. So remember, the only way we can know anything about God is either through natural revelation, which is the creation, or through what we call special or divine revelation, which is the Bible. What's very interesting here is when you read verse 20, Paul is saying that some true things can be known about who God is, namely his divine power and his invisible attributes. However, notice this revelation that comes from nature is only sufficient, it's only good enough, as it were, to hang us. Because notice as we keep reading, nobody ends up responding to the natural revelation and trusting in God. Yet, Paul says they are without excuse. Now let me tell you a story. Years ago, do you remember R.C. Sproul? Most of you in here have heard of him. Famous Reformed theologian. He was asked by someone, what does God do with the poor, innocent aborigine in Africa who has never heard the gospel? Surely God would never send an innocent aborigine to hell, would he? And R.C. Sproul said, no, God would never send an innocent aborigine to hell. But the one question we have to ask is, are there any innocent aborigines? And the point in Romans 1.20 is that even if the aborigine was never given the word of God, what he could know about God through the created order was sufficient so that he could start responding, but they don't even like that in their sinful condition. The same with you and I. So here's the point. If someone has never heard the gospel, they're still culpable. Why? Because some true things can be known about God. Enough light is given, but yet people turn away from even that which is expressed through the natural order, and they turn to idolatry. That's the point of verses 21 now through 27. They don't even like that which is revealed about God through the natural revelation, so much so that they become idolaters. So Nancy, keep reading now verses 21 through 27. For even though they knew God, they did not... Stop there. I'm sorry. Notice, they knew God. Mm -hmm. They knew something of him, didn't they? So even though they had some knowledge, now that's important because there will be some say, well, no, you can't know anything about God through natural revelation. That's not what Paul's saying. The Apostle Paul, through special revelation, is telling us, no, some things, even though they're limited, can be known by, of God through the natural revelation. I'm sorry, continue on. They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So stop there. I'm sorry, Nancy. We'll stop there just in verse 23. So notice the exchange. They exchanged exchanged the creator for the creation, didn't they? That's idolatry. So instead of responding to God in what revelation they were given... Instead, they became idolaters. That's Paul's point. Now, I'm sorry, keep going. 
Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the Creator rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I'm sorry, keep reading. Uh, for to this verse reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Okay, good. So here God hands them over to their own lusts. He hands them over to their own idolatry. So notice as God hands them over, he's not hardening soft hearts who want to follow him, who want to know him. He's just allowing them to be who they are. Why? Because they're, as we all were, naturally dead sinners in Adam. That's what's going on. So he hands them over. Now notice in verse 28, Paul says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do, those, to do those things which are not proper. Now, dear ones, notice in verse 28 where it says, they did not see fit. That's a negation of a term in Greek called dokimatso. Now, dokimatso is a term that Bob and I have talked about quite a bit. It's been a while. But what dokimatso has to do with is think about testing something in a test tube to see if it's genuine, okay? Um, if you wanted to test some chemical to see if it's really that chemical, that's what dokimatsu is like. You're testing something. So the idea is that human beings tested God and they didn't like him. They didn't like who he was. Now, the reason that's important, because notice later in the text, it says God gave them over to a depraved mind. The term depraved is ah. Dokimatsu. So in other words, they wouldn't approve of God and say, yeah, we want him. Therefore, he gave them over to a mind that could no longer discern that which is good or that which was bad, that which was from God and that which was evil. He handed them over to a mind that was unable to discern anymore. Now, it's as if, like Bob said to me once, he said, they disapproved of God. He shows that he disapproves of them. Yeah, that's what it says. Okay. Exactly. So he hands them over to a mind that no longer functions properly. So one thing we can know from our spiritual death, that state, is that it incorporates us not thinking correctly. Our minds are marred by sin. We no longer approve that which is from God. Yes, Bob? Well, that shows us why, if you're like me and you watch political debates sometime, and you see what, or even just read the paper, why are there so many people calling evil good? Yes. If you read what you just read, these are things that the world we live in approves of. And anyone who doesn't is called evil. The Bible says, what are those who call good evil and evil good? That's exactly what's going on. So Romans, that Eric's teaching us, explains what we see when people are debating. Yes. And why they hate Christianity so much. And 
the this judgment of hardening, that's what this is, reprobation. Yes, amen. Yep. That's what that means. Is that if you disapprove of God, then he says, okay, I'm going to turn you over to this. But then the horrors of being turned over to your own devices are horrible. And things just get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And people self-destruct. And that's what this, in the Greek, you just have a alpha primitive going on here for... Um, Adokimon, adokimon, a reprobate mind, yeah. a disapproved mind. So when you're, every day when you read the paper, you see the writings many times of disapproved minds. Yeah. Oh, this is terrible. This is these people are evil. They're not going to let Planned Parenthood have more abortions. And we read it, and we go, what? Murdering babies is good. That's what adokimon, that's what a disapproved mind looks like, and that's all they think. Yeah, amen. Well said, Bob. Thank you. Yeah, Brian. I just have a question here on uh, verse 28. Yes. Where God gave them over to a depraved mind. Now, is that, did he actually, did he actually do something? Or like we've said in other areas, he just withdrew. So he didn't actually do anything to give them a depraved mind. He left them alone. Very good question. So let's use the analogy of Pharaoh. In Romans 9, it says that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. What did he have to do, that is God, to harden Pharaoh? He had, yeah, he let Pharaoh be Pharaoh. That's the point that Paul's making here because in verse 20, they were without excuse. They knew, even in their natural state from the general creation, the general revelation, they knew something of God, but they didn't like him. So what God did is he, he's not in the business of taking a soft heart that wants him and hardening it but rather he's letting them be who they are. They're born dead sinners, and he's just allowing them to be. So that's the difference between Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism. In Calvinism, Calvin made a distinction between regeneration of the elect, where God is hands-on, and the hardening of the reprobate, where he's hands-off. So notice all the way through this text, they're the ones who wanted the idolatry. They're the ones who serve the creation rather than the creator who's forever praised. God gives them those things. And as Bob said, that really is a form of judgment here and now where he hands them over to be who they are. But yes, God's hands off on that. Yes. As a matter of fact, in the bigger context of Romans, yeah. God is actually doing things generally to restrain evil. Exactly. He's not forcing people to be evil. He's actually restraining it. In, in what way? Well, number one, it says that we have a conscience, even as lost sinners. Yes. But they have burned, those, some people have seared their conscience yeah. with a hot iron, hot right. iron in it's Timothy. Formed correctly, right? Okay, so their consciences, they're sinning against their own conscience. So the human conscience is still trying to tell people, no, don't do this. Number two, you have civil government. All right? Mm, yes. And God uses civil government to punish evildoers, as Eric has taught us in Timothy and in Romans. Yeah, amen. Okay? So God is mercifully 
putting us under civil government so it's not as bad as it could be. Number three, at this point in history, the church is still here intermingled with everybody else. Right. And so there's still light on the earth of people that love Christ and are intermingled in society, and that's also a restraining influence at this time. Yeah. But from eschatology, we know things are going to change. That's right, that's right. The civil governments, God's going to, the rapture's going to happen, all right? And one of the things that happens during Daniel's 70th week is they give their authority to the beast. So instead of being under human civil governments, they end up under Antichrist. That's right. And they're allowed to have everything they want, but it's going to be hell on earth. So if hyper-Calvinists are, really don't have a good understanding of Scripture. Yeah, okay? God is restraining evil. He is making it better than it would be. And he is slowing down how bad it would be. But it won't always be that way. That's right. It's going to get worse. That's right. Okay, so we should be thankful it's not worse than it is now. Well said. Yes, Nancy. I don't want to take us back too far, but I had a question about Adam sinning in the garden. Yeah. So would the Lord have allowed Adam to be who he was? Would, I mean, he allowed him to fail in the garden because sure. he brought sin, and, I mean, that was his plan. But I've sure. always wrestled with that a little bit about how, how and why he used Adam in the garden for original sin. Sure. I mean, he allowed it to happen. So did he leave him alone and, and let him do that? Obviously, you're right. It's his foreordained plan. I can't get into the mind of God and reveal or understand you know, what he hasn't revealed to us. But the one thing I'll say, Nancy, is at that time, the way, the way I'd understand Adam's nature is that he rightly did make a free choice. Okay, in other words, he wasn't corrupt at that time. So prior to the fall, he had the ability to either obey or not obey. Now, after Adam sins, that's done away with. Why? Because we're dead in Adam. So every single human being born dead in Adam is in a state in which they're unable to respond to the things of God. Now, at regeneration, when the Holy Spirit comes upon people, he changes that. He brings us to faith. So, again, before the fall, able to sin, able not to sin. After the fall natural-born person able only to sin or able not to be able to restrain sin. But then after regeneration and after conversion, again, filled by the Spirit, able to sin or not sin. But that bothers you and I because we don't want to sin against our Lord. But the great promise is that one day in glory we'll no longer sin. And I like to use it positively. We will have the ability to no longer sin. We'll no longer sin anymore against our God. We will only be a blessing to him and his name. So um, for, we just know that it's God's foreseen plan, that he knew that would happen. He allowed it to happen. But I would say Adam in the garden really had the ability to either obey or not obey. The moment after that transpired, that first sin, what the Bible is clearly revealing to us is all other human beings were born in a state in which rebellion was their only option. Not because God you know, wasn't allowing them to obey, but because of their own depravity. That's the point. And that's why when we talk about fairness, we're all depraved in and of our own selves. It's not God's doing. 
We're the ones who love and worship and serve the creation rather than the creator who's forever praised. He's not forcing us to do that. When he hands us over, he's just allowing us to be who we are by nature. Yes, Linda. I'm finally coming to a better understanding of under the spiritually dead, but then I'm struggling with that we were created with a free will. And then how is it that it's also the gift that you accept, but yet you're spiritually dead? Does that make sense? Absolutely. In other words, on the one hand, we're commanded to believe. On the other hand, we don't have the ability to believe. And that's the beautiful part about salvation is that God does even that for us. So later, and if we continue the reading of Ephesians 2, remember you get to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, excuse me, where it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, that not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, there's a demonstrative pronoun where it says, that not of yourselves. That demonstrative pronoun reaches back to verse 8 where it says, you've been saved by grace through faith. So even in Ephesians 2.8, we see that the faith itself is a gift that's given from God. So when you believed, Linda, you really did believe, but it was because God regenerated your heart. And that's one thing I want to point out, by the way, is notice in verse 28 of our Romans 1 text, where it says he handed them over to a depraved mind. It's very helpful, I think, to define what do we mean by mind. The term in Greek there, nous, has to do with our mental faculty. Here's three aspects of our mental faculty, as I would understand it. Number one, our intellect. When you learned mathematics, you're using your mind. You're using your intellect. But as you're going to find out, that's what I want to lay out for you here in the next sessions, is I want to show you that the mind is more than just the intellect. Two plus two is four. But it also incorporates the will or our disposition. That's what Bob is mentioning when Luther was confronting Erasmus. Our will is in bondage. Why? Because we're morally opposed to God because we love our sin. And that's what I'm going to show you is ultimately the reason you and I don't have the ability to come to faith in Jesus Christ is because we're morally opposed to him. So our mind is comprised of our intellect, our will, and also our emotions. It is the center of our thought life. So it is therefore synonymous oftentimes with how the writers in the Old Testament and even Jesus would use the term heart. Remember, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. The heart isn't just the organ that pumps blood. They're using it metaphorically for the center of the thought life. That's why Jesus says, remember, it's nothing that goes into a man that can defile him, but what defiles him is what comes out of him. For the sins come from the heart, and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth what? It speaks. Okay. So the point is, Linda, you and I are dead sinners in Adam, the Bible is revealing that we are given freedom in the sense that we can make choices, but our will is in bondage because of our original sin nature to such an extent that we will never want the gospel. We will never want Christ unless he intervenes supernaturally and changes our heart. And that's the great promise that we see in the old covenant. He says, I will give you a new heart in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. In Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and I will give you a new spirit 
he says. So that's God doing first. This is what it means to be born again. That's why Jesus says no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born from above. You're born once into this world, you're opposed to God. But if you're born from above, he does a heart transplant so that for the first time, you're not morally opposed to the gospel. Now you find it to be sweet and your only means of salvation. That's the idea. Okay, does that make sense? I hope that helps. And we'll keep wrestling with this. Yeah, Bob. Uh, and Linda, you made a good point, though. Remember, God uses means. And that's what Luther really was so good about. God yes. uses means. So even when you're talking about Ezekiel. Yes. Also, it says, make for yourselves a new heart. Yeah, he commands us to do it. He right? commands us to do what we can't do. Amen. And so when Ezekiel says, make for yourselves a new heart in the name of the Lord, that's what Luther was saying is the thunderbolt uh, that w- there's something that God uses, yeah. the message preached, to see, I can't. Something yeah. will, will cause us to be convicted of sin and realize I can't do it. I'm, I'm, all I ever want to do is sin. How, God's, how can God help me? Yeah. And so how will they call upon him upon who they haven't heard. That's right. Okay? And, uh, and so the reason we're so uh, vehement about gospel preaching is that that's the means God has chosen to use to awaken dead sinners. And so it would be an affront for somebody to say, well, God makes this sinner, dead sinners alive, so therefore we're going to sit here and see if that happens or not. Right. We're not going to do anything. We're yeah. just going to sit and see if it ever happens. Yeah. yeah. That, that would be, that, that's not what it says. Why did Jesus, who told us these things, send the disciples out to preach repentance for forgiveness of sins? That's right. Com- preaching repentance is like Ezekiel saying, make for yourself a new heart. Or I think Jeremiah is saying, circumcise your hearts. Amen. Well, I can't do it. Well, then God says, I'll circumcise your heart. Amen. So you cry out to God, I'm a worthless, hopeless Dead sinner, deserving hell. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh, and only Christ can do it. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. He, he, he shows us Amen. the need to do it, and then Amen. he does it through the gospel. Amen. So he uses the word. So... Think of this, uh, Romans 1.20, what may be known about God was evident to them all, his divine attributes, his uh, eternal power, so that they are without excuse. Natural revelation leaves without excuse. But in Romans 10.17, it says faith comes by hearing and hearing by looking at the general revelation. No, it doesn't say that. It says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So God uses gospel preaching. However, the gospel is preached to many who don't believe. So Gospel preaching to dead sinners left to their own devices will still leave them dead sinners. This is where the Holy Spirit comes upon people and enables them to believe the gospel. So gospel preaching plus regeneration by the Spirit to enable them to believe is what saves. That's the point of being born again in John chapter 3. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. I'm sorry, we gotta, we'll get you back on mic here. What, what I'm just talking about is 
when it comes to the Old Testament. Yeah. There was the Word of God there. Absolutely. And the statutes and the ordinances. That was what was circumcising their hearts. You would okay. not say that? Yeah, so the, so the law doesn't do that. The, the circumcision of the heart is one that's responsive to God by faith. So think about it. Remember in Romans 4, Paul makes the point that Abraham was justified by faith, and that was 400 years prior to the coming of the law. So the Israelite who's living under the law of Moses, he's justified not through the acts of obedience per se, he's justified like Abraham was by faith. So you might ask, well, why then all the business about the sacrifices? Well, he does that in obedience. Let's say the the Israelite who is saved by faith, why does he offer the goat? Well, he does so because he's commanded to do so. So why do you and I do the Lord's Supper? Do we do it to earn our salvation? No, because we're commanded and because we have faith. Okay? So in the same way, they were given ordinances that in and of themselves could not save. So never think that, well, under the old covenant, they had one way of salvation. It was by works. But now under the new covenant, they have a new way of salvation. It's by faith. No, it's always been by faith. That's why Abraham was justified by faith prior to the law. So why the law? The law comes in to show us how miserable we are, that we can't do those things that make us righteous before God's sight. So does that help? Yeah, so the circumcision of the heart is something God commands. It means have a heart that's responsive to me. Trust in me. But none of us could do that. So much so that in Deuteronomy 10, he commands us to do it. Later on in Deuteronomy, I believe, 30, he says, I'll have to do it for you. We see that also in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Ezekiel 36, Joel 2, 20 through 31. It's all over the place. So God has to do the circumcision. And that's why... I'm talking about us being dead sinners. Why does he have to give us a new heart? Because we have a heart that's dead. It's morally opposed to the things of God. Let me um, turn to a passage, and I'm going to show you some passages that talk about how dead our minds are in sin. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Philippians 3, 17 through 21. Philippians 3, 17 through 21. The reason I like this passage is you see a contrast between the godly... That is, believers who've been changed, they were regenerated, they believe in Christ, and the ungodly, those who still walk according to this world. Philippians 3, verses 17 through 21. So notice there in verse 17, Paul's addressing believers. He says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now stop there. Why would you want to walk according to the pattern that Paul is given? Well, again, he's an apostle and he speaks for Christ. Okay, so the very words we're reading are the very words of Christ, therefore. That's how I think of it. So again, the term walk, peripateo, live this way. Live out according to the pattern you have in us. Verse 18, he says, For many walk of whom I have often told you, And now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds 
on earthly things. Stop there. Notice the unregenerate. Where is their mind set? It's set on earthly things. Are they living for the promises of God? Are they living for the resurrection? Are they living for the kingdom that's coming? No. Their mind is set on the earthly things. Why? Because they don't believe a lick of the promises of God. They don't believe any of that. So think about Paul. Talks about in Romans chapter 7, covetousness. He takes the final commandment of the Ten Commandments Mm -hmm. and he says covetousness, when he finally saw that, finally he coveted and he realized that the law killed him. Why did Paul use covetousness? Why didn't he simply use thou shall not steal, thou shall not murder? One of those commandments or the, the commandment about not being an idolater. You shall have no other gods before me. But he used covetousness because at the root of covetousness is the longing for something in the creation more than the creator. And he used that because he knew no single person can get out of that one. You might say, wait a minute, I've never murdered anyone. That commandment doesn't apply, but oh, you can't get around, thou shall not covet. Because truth be told, every person has wanted something on this earth more than they wanted God. That's the way we are in our unregenerate state. Those with an unregenerate mind only want the things of this world. So you say, well, why do they try to live from girlfriend to girlfriend or boyfriend to boyfriend? Because this is all they have. Why do they cheat on their taxes and cheat their neighbor and do this and that? It's because this is all there is. They're living with their minds set on earthly things. Now notice the contrast, verse 20. For our, now he's talking about believers, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why are we eagerly waiting for him? Because we believe the promises of God. Verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Notice the distinction. The unregenerate mind's always on the earthly things, but the mind of the regenerate because it's been freed to believe in Christ and the gospel, it's set on the coming of Christ. That's a mind transplant, a heart transplant that God affects, and he does it through the power of the Spirit, Amen. enabling us to believe. Let's look at one more passage before we close. And then um, there, there's several, and again, notice the term minds. Their minds were set on the earthly things. Here's Titus 1.15. Please turn your Bibles there. I'm going to show you another passage about the mind and the conscience being defiled for the unregenerate. Titus 1.15. Again, one of the pastoral epistles here. Titus 1.15. First Timothy, Second Timothy, we're studying that now. Those are pastoral epistles. Well, here's Titus. Titus 1.15, it says, To the pure, all things are pure, Paul says, but to those who are defiled, so here's the unregenerate, and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. So whatever it means to be born a dead sinner in Adam, it certainly means that our minds and our consciences are defiled. They don't function correctly, and they are filthy before God. 
That's the idea. So let's look at the term mind there. Again, the term mind there is noose. Three aspects to it. Our intellect has to do with our will. Third, it has to do with our emotions. And because it's defiled, we can infer we don't think right. Our will isn't right. Our emotions, our whole thought life is defiled before God. What about conscience? How does Paul see conscience? Because as Bob rightly said in Romans, Paul is very clear to say everyone has a conscience. What's very interesting is the conscience is that inner referee that all of us have that determines whether something's good or bad. But for the Apostle Paul, that conscience, that inner referee, has to be informed. Well, if it's not properly informed by some outsourced source, it's going to be defiled. Now, what's the proper source to have your conscience informed by? The Bible. Bob was just talking about in politics, we're seeing Romans 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Why? Because their conscience isn't informed by the word of God. So their inner referee thinks that if you prohibit abortion, you're doing evil. But if you're getting more abortions in the world, you're doing good. Why? Because their conscience is defiled. It's not informed by the word of God. It's informed by the God, small g, of this age, Satan and the demonic doctrines of this age. That's what it looks like to be the unregenerate. And they didn't have to work themselves up to that. They were born in that condition. And God just lets them be unless he decides sovereignly in his good pleasure to regenerate and bring them to faith. So as you can see, we'll leave here. The, dead, the nature of being dead in Adam, having a sin nature in which you and I are dead, unable to do that which is pleasing to God, primarily affects our minds so we don't think as we ought and we cannot will to do that which is pleasing to God we cannot come to faith in and of ourselves now next week here's a passage I'll have you read for next week read 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 through 4 and in fact if you want to read 2 Corinthians starting in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4 but read 2 Corinthians 4 verses 1 through 4 Because there it talks about the God of this world having blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And we'll talk about that. That's something that God has to overcome. So we'll be wrestling then next week, again further, with just how depraved is our mind. And we're going to be wrestling with what kind of inability we have. We're going to make a distinction between something called natural inability and something called moral inability. Natural inability means God is speaking Chinese we only understand English. I'm going to show that that's not what inability, the kind of inability that we have. I'll be showing that we have a moral inability, that we know what God is saying, but we don't like it. That's how our mind is depraved in our spiritual death. So with that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that your word, your divine revelation clearly shows us who we are so that we may know that the gift of salvation is completely a gift and that you deserve all the glory, that none of us were smarter than our neighbor who's still in their sins when we trusted in you, but even faith was a gift, so all glory goes to you. We thank you for revealing this to us, all by your gracious power, in Jesus' name. We also pray, Lord, for Bob, for the sermon today. I pray, Lord, you would help us to understand the problem with these enneagrams, 
mysticism and denying the sufficiency of your word for sanctification. Help us to think well, and we pray for our beloved teacher, Bob, in Jesus' name. Amen.